This episode of Hello PhD is sponsored by Promega and listeners like you. Thanks for your support. If you don't want to stay in academia, get out of academia and get into pharma. The longer you stay in academia, the less attractive you will become to the pharmaceutical company because you'll be more difficult to train. Welcome to Hello PhD, a podcast for scientists and the people who love them. This week, we discover the perfect career for people who love learning and talking about science, but not the lab. Stay with us. And we're back. This is Hello PhD, episode 117. I'm Joshua Hall. I'm Daniel Arneman. And we'll discuss the human side of science and life in the lab. Hello there, Dan. Josh, good talking to you. Good talking to you. Happy summer. Oh, it is. It Officially is. summer now. Oh, yeah. The solstice happened. The solstice happened. Nice. Um, we are celebrating with a listener beer today, Josh. I love a listener beer. And this one came to us from Talia, whose question we answered last week on the show. Now, this is, for the record, this is not why we answered the question. <laughs> it wasn't because we were bribed with beer. If you would like your question answered on the show, it's not transactional. The bar now is you have to not only send in a question, but also a six pack of beer. Yeah. Start with a good question, though, because that does help. <laughs> and we enjoyed answering Talia's question. This is the Alpine Beer Company's Duet India Pale Ale. So, near and dear to my heart, uh, Talia brought us a pale ale from San Diego, California. Yeah, she was uh, visiting San Diego and knew we liked IPAs. So, she brought us this beer. And it is quite tasty. I would say this is a great representation of an IPA. Yeah, you know, I'm always in search for the source of piney hops flavors to understand where they come from. What's in this one? Well, this is interesting because it's, it's Alpine Beer Company, and it says on the side, everyone's favorite IPA. This Alpine masterpiece features pine, citrus, and cedar notes from Simcoe and Amarillo hops. So I wonder now if I need to narrow down my search to something just hopped with Simcoe or Amarillo to find out the true nature of pine flavor i feel like you see the amarillo pretty regularly the simcoe i'm less or amarillo i don't know how you pronounce this amarillo probably yeah uh you know dan i think my ipa tastes are changing or evolving i should say from what to what well i mean i've talked numerous times on the show how i went for a while through this session beer phase where i really liked a low gravity kind of lighter presentation of an ipa I would think you would continue with that into the summer, but no. I don't know. I think I'm starting to appreciate some of these slightly higher gravity beers, This that extra richness that, that comes with them. Does that make sense? Yeah, you know, it you does. Can, you can taste it in this beer. It's a different mouthfeel. It definitely, depending on the beer, can be pleasant or unpleasant. I'll say that. Yeah. Well, I, I love this one. Thanks so much to Talia for providing it to us. And Josh, I think we have a few Patreon patrons we can announce this week. We sure do, Dan. We have two new Patreon patrons. A special thank you to Haya and Clayton for joining our growing group of Patreon supporters. Thank you so much. So, Dan, not everyone has the resources to support the show, but there are ways any one of our listeners can help us, and that is to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcasting platform. We, yep. we love getting that feedback. We do. We, do, we love to read them. I'll read one today, Josh, uh, just because we got this one in recently. It says, Dear Josh and Dan, thank you so much for making the podcast. I especially appreciate the practical financial advice, which oh. is something I would not have expected. Yeah, and that's a shout out to Emily Roberts, who's Absolutely. been a regular guest on the show. Uh, the humor mixed in with the content makes 
working through the challenging research experience less stressful. That is, that is what we aim to do. Not easy, not just easy. less stressful. <laughs> but we can't come do the experiments yeah, for not, you, nor would you want us to. Uh, in my case, that is very true. You would not. So thank you again for leaving the review on iTunes. That does help us out. And also a special thanks to Promega. Dan, what does Promega have going on these days? Well, the same thing they've had going on for a little while, which is resources to help uh, you to train maybe students that are working in your lab or maybe to advance your own knowledge in a specific field. They've got resources uh, for all kinds of cellular and molecular biology techniques like cell culture, reporter assays, PCR, cloning, all the things that you do every day. Um, you can go to promega.com slash hellophd. Check out that resource center. Josh, the other day I discovered they have a cell counting app. An app? Oh, it's, it'll count cultures on your bacteria uh, auger. You hold the like colony cam- counts. Yeah, you hold the camera above it, and it like marks them, and you can unmark them. It's, uh, I haven't tried it because I don't have any colonies to count. Yeah, we we were born about ten years too early. Totally. I mean, I was a microbiologist. I can't tell you how, how many, many times many you counted hours, colonies. hours and hours, dozens of hours. I think we need to try it out. Yeah, steal something from the lab. Well, I'm looking at this student resource page, and this is pretty slick. I c- certainly encourage all of our listeners in the lab doing experiments check this stuff out all right josh well let's get to our main topic that i teased in the beginning there we have a career that i knew next to zero about and that is medical science liaison let's learn about it Aoife o'dwyer welcome to hello phd thank you very much we're very excited to have you. Um, we have periodically in the past covered different careers that scientists can go into. And we had a question recently about one that I didn't have very much knowledge on. And that's why we're talking to you. I'll go ahead and read that question. The question is, my name is Kara and I'm a second year graduate student at Vanderbilt University. I started listening to you when you came to do a live podcast taping at Vanderbilt earlier this year. I'm interested in working with clinical trials in the future, maybe as a clinical trial manager or medical science liaison. I was wondering if you guys know anyone who went into this type of career who could talk on the show about how they got there and what their job is like. Thanks and congrats again. And thankfully, we have found that person. So Eva, tell us, just to start off, you have gone through a, a scientific training process. Tell us a little bit about what your uh, training was like. Yeah, so I did uh, my undergrad degree, which was four years in genetics and cell biology, and that was back in Dublin, Ireland. Um, during my degree, I really enjoyed working in the lab. So I actually thought I wanted to get a job working with a pharmaceutical company in the lab. But when I finished um, college, there was a big recession in Ireland, so it was really, really difficult to get a job. So I didn't have any luck with getting a job in pharma at that stage. Um, and I ended up getting a one-year research assistant position in an academic lab. Um, And after a few months into that position, my PhD or my supervisor um, offered me a PhD. And I was quite enjoying the work I was doing, so I decided to accept my PhD. Um, Now, I have to say, that being said, about a year into my four-year PhD, I thought, oh my God, academia, this is not for me. I don't want to do this for the rest of my life. So I did actually try and quit my PhD about a year in. Um, Welcome to the club. (laughs) You tried to quit. You unsuccessfully... I tried to quit, You failed at quitting. Yeah. 
I did. I failed at quitting. I literally, I remember the meeting I had with my boss where I was just talking to him about some results of some experiments and he was like, yeah, sounds good. And then I was like, oh, one more thing. And he was like, yes. And I was like, I'd like to quit my PhD. <laughs> you saved it for the end. <laughs> yeah. And he was like, what? Where's this coming from? Um, so my boss was fantastic. And he actually... He, he kind of put me in contact with a lot of different people who did other jobs that weren't academic, who had done PhDs, because my whole thing was, I don't want a postdoc, I don't want to become a principal investigator, so why am I bothering doing a PhD? I'm better off just doing something different. So after a lot of discussion, um, I managed to negotiate a shorter PhD with my boss. So instead of being four years, I finished it in about two years and eight months. Um, so it was obviously a very, very busy two years and eight months, but I was able to, uh, yeah, get on my plane to Australia with my PhD in my back pocket, which is something I'm very, very proud of. That's incredible. Yeah, we just completed a series on uh, finishing PhDs in less than five years. And we thought that would be astounding if it could be fewer than five years. Mm. You apparently did it. Yeah, yeah, I did. I did. Um, I, I think it was one of the first people in my universities to do it in less than three years anyway. Um, and look, it took a huge amount of persuasion and negotiation with my boss. And I really had to influence him to kind of say, look, tell me what I need to do. I'll get it done. Because at the end of the day, he had, you know, he needed to get out papers so he could get further grant proposals. So I was like, look, these are the papers I'm proposing. These are the experiments I'll do. You know, I worked 12, 14 hour days for a lot of it, um, but I got it done. So it all worked out in the end. For better or worse, right? Now, it sounds like even before you, even before you went into a PhD program, and, and it sounds like you kind of fell into a PhD program, you were yeah. interested in industry and pharma and there just wasn't an opportunity at that time so yeah yeah as you were wrapping that up and and trying to finish quickly i think one of the things that holds people back from finishing is they maybe don't know what they want to do next they know they don't want to be a postdoc they know they don't want to go on to academia yeah. uh, but they don't know what's next and so they drag their feet did you know yeah. pretty early that you wanted to do medical science liaison i i didn't know that I wanted to be a medical science liaison because I, I didn't actually know the job existed. Um, there wasn't a lot of medical science liaisons or MSLs in Ireland at the time, but I had a friend of a friend who had moved to Australia and become an MSL. And this was kind of my first introduction to the job. And when she told me about her job, I kind of thought, oh, well, you know, that sounds really interesting. And there's, there ten, there's a lot of MSL jobs in Australia. So that was kind of another reason that I moved to Australia because I really thought, and I was right, that my career would progress quite quickly when I was over there. So yeah, I think that's the difficult thing about um, finishing up a PhD. When you're surrounded by people who have done PhDs and then they postdoc, it's it's difficult to take the blinkers off and kind of see what else is out there. Absolutely. Um, this is probably a great time to for you to tell us what a medical science liaison does. I, uh, you know, Josh and I both graduated with people who went on to do this. I can probably name yeah. two or three at least. Um, but I honestly have no idea what they do in their jobs. They seem happy, they seem successful, but I don't know what they're <laughs> yeah. doing. So please tell me yeah. what is a medical well, science liaison? Yeah, with pleasure. Um, so a medical science liaison is a field-based non-promotional expert on a product or therapeutic area. And the job of the MSL or the medical science liaison is to develop collaborative relationships with people that we call key opinion leaders who are experts in a certain um, therapeutic area and use those relationships to um, kind of improve the pharmaceutical company or inform the strategy of the pharmaceutical company. Um, so just to kind of 
go through and break some of that down a little bit further. Um, when I say an MSL is a field-based expert, I mean they're based in the field, they're out visiting doctors and researchers as opposed to being based in head office um, and just sitting at a desk all day, though often MSLs will need to go into the office to um, maybe catch up with their boss or some of their other colleagues at different times. And then when I talk about a key opinion leader, so these are the people that the MSL needs to develop relationships with. A key opinion leader is someone who is incredibly influential and well-respected in their therapeutic field. So, for example, if I was an MSL and I was working on a drug for breast cancer, a KOL would be an oncologist who focuses on breast cancer. And in terms of determining a KOL and how influential they are, you'd look at things like um, if they're publishing a lot in the field of breast cancer in this example, specifically looking at first and last author, look at if they're invited to speak um, at national and international um, conferences, because this identifies that other people have identified that they're experts in their field. Look if they're involved in writing guidelines for, treat, for treating breast cancer um, and look at some key boards. So I'm sure in the US there's something like a Breast Cancer Society of America and who sits on the board there who kind of makes decisions. So all those factors will determine um, the key opinion leaders that an MSL will see. Okay, so you are raising as many questions as you're answering for me because you... Okay, great. <laughs> you you describe it. I think it's a pretty clear description of, of who a key opinion leader might be. But you said in the medical science liaison uh, definition, you said non-promotional. And, and it sounds yeah. like almost like a sales approach, but that is not what you're doing. Yeah, completely. So it's definitely not um, a sales person because in a pharmaceutical company, you'll have medical science liaisons and then you'll also have your sales representatives as well. There are a couple of key differences. Um, the first thing is obviously with a sales representative, their number one priority is to sell the drug. They only meet prescribers of the drug and they want the outcome of their meeting is to get that prescriber to write a prescription for the product. Whereas for the MSL, it's really not about prescriptions or driving sales at all. It's about building peer-to-peer -peer relationships. Um, MSLs have a lot more freedom in what they can talk about as well. So sales reps will often have like a sales detail aid or an iPad that they have to speak about and they'll have key selling messages. An MSL wouldn't have that at all. They can talk about different papers that they think would interest the KOL. Um, MSL also has a lot of other activities. So an MSL will identify um, different data gaps for a product or a therapeutic area. So that's part of the building the relationships and gaining insights from KOL. So if a KOL says to an MSL, look, you know, I kind of, I like your product, but why don't you have any data in this cohort of people? Because um, that's a large cohort that I treat and I think they're really important. That's an insight that the MSL can take back into the head office of the pharmaceutical company and say, look, this KOL who's really influential, thinks there's a data gap here. There's an opportunity to generate local data. Is this something that we can support? So an MSL manages investigator-initiated studies. Does that make a bit more sense? Much, it makes much more sense. So there, there are separate teams um and, and your outcomes are different. So when you go and have these meetings, how, what are you doing with that information? Are you, are you reporting? Are you um, kind of taking that back to the home office to help guide some kind of a strategic team? How does that interface work? Yeah. 
Yeah, exactly. So it varies from company to company. Um, a lot of companies used um, use what they call a CRM, a customer relationship management system, um, where after a meeting and sales reps often use this system as well, you'll just kind of track the insights. Um, I personally find it really useful to speak to uh, my medical manager and my medical team about certain insights um, and use that to drive the medical strategy. Um, so we'd usually have a catch up maybe once every eight weeks and we'd talk about different medical projects that we might be able to do. Another example of a medical project, if it isn't to do with um, kind of managing a, a clinical trial, it might be, for example, if a if you've just worked on a, a new product that has been launched, um, you speak to a KOL and you ask them kind of a question like, you know, what kind of treatment guidelines um, do you use or do you look to when treating this type of patient? And if they say, you know, I use guidelines X, Y and Z, and then you check the guidelines and the product that you work on isn't in those guidelines, then a medical project might be to get those guidelines updated so that the product you work on is listed in the guidelines. So the healthcare professionals have the most up to date information possible when they are making those treatment decisions. So then would you say kind of a, an overview of what your, your job is and that of an MSL would be to almost ensure that the company you're working for is staying up to speed with the current science in, in a given field, but also the current clinical thinking and application? Yeah, I mean, some people describe the MSL role as the bridge between the pharmaceutical company and the, the doctors and clinicians who treat it. Because at the end of the day, the strategy of a pharmaceutical company, it needs to serve patients and it needs to serve those prescribers. Um, so an MSL needs to understand what are the kind of the pain points or the issues that those people are having so our strategy can change and reflect that. If it, why, why do I need a PhD to do this job? It sounds like, um, you know, I, I can go out, I can meet some people, I can talk to them about what they're doing, maybe report back. Is there any reason that I should get a PhD to go do this? Yeah, um, so I suppose the first reason is that most MSL positions require a PhD. That's like the entry point. If you don't have a PhD, you're not even going to get an interview. Um, there are certain companies who might hire people with a pharmacy background, but for most places, they really do um, prefer PhD graduates. Um, the reason for that is obviously during a PhD, you gain a great understanding of science. You're able to read clinical papers, and this enables you to have kind of a peer-to-peer -peer relationship with those key opinion leaders. If you don't fully understand the science of the therapeutic area or the science of the product you're working on, your conversation with the KOL can only go so far. It's really from that deep understanding that you can ask the right questions to get the right insights from those key opinion leaders, which are ultimately going to be quite valuable to your company. That makes sense. And I think we've all been to the doctor where the doctor doesn't know that you necessarily are trained in science. And yeah. they they would speak to you in a different way than if yeah, well, they understood yeah. that you had a background, that you were able to understand the research, that you, you know, knew where your tibia was. It would it would change that conversation. Yeah, exactly. And look, I think to come back to it, that's another big difference between sales reps and um, MSLs. The conversations with sales reps they're quite focused and they're quite top line. They can only go so far. But obviously with a PhD, an MSL can dig a lot deeper and just have really fantastic scientific discussions with these key opinion leaders. So I'm curious, first of all, most of our listeners, a lot of our listeners are in science training programs. They're either graduate students yeah. or they're postdocs. And you talked a little bit about 
your own interest in doing a, a career like an MSL? What might be some clues? Because I imagine a lot of our listeners too maybe have never even heard of this job before. Yeah. Or if they've heard of it, they don't know exactly uh, what it was until they heard you talk about yeah. it. So, so what type of person out there in graduate school might be a good fit for an MSL? Yeah, so for me, the thing that I really enjoyed about my PhD, I loved presenting my data. Um, I loved going to conferences and talking to other people. And I think that's one of the reasons that I'm a good fit for the MSL role. If you're um, a PhD um, undergrad at the moment and you just, you don't really like presenting, you don't like talking to other people about science, but you just really love working in the lab, then an MSL job isn't going to be for you. But if you love presenting, you love discussing science, you love kind of asking different questions, finding out about different types of research, um, talking to people, I think soft skills are hugely important for the MSL role, then an MSL role would probably be a good fit for you. It sounds, I mean, the way you describe it, it sounds deeply relationship focused. You're, it's not a one time yeah. you talk to this person and then it's over. It's, it's over time you're developing a relationship. Is it only for extroverts? Do you have to be an extroverted person? No, not at all. Um, I actually consider myself more of an introvert than an extrovert. I think one of the huge benefits of being a little bit more introverted is that you tend to be a really, really good listener. Sometimes if you're incredibly extroverted, you might talk more than the KOL. And at the end of the day, you're not actually going to get great insights for the company if you're doing more talking than the KOL. Um, I remember I heard I had a, a boss previously who said that one of the advantages of introverts is that they can choose to be extroverted, whereas an extrovert can never choose to be introverted. I thought it was, that may be true. <laughs> I like that. Yeah, I thought, thought it was a good way. So really extroverted, introvert, there's no... If someone is an introvert, definitely don't let that put you off um, being an MSL. I can I can fake being friendly and nice, but it'd be funny to see an extrovert fake listening. <laughs> I'm listening. Yeah, exactly. I'm listening. I'm doing a really great job listening. Oh yeah, that's really great. <laughs> uh, so what was that? What's the process like seeking out MSL positions and interviewing for those positions? Because you made that transition directly from your PhD to an MSL, I believe is what you said. I was very focused um, on. Yeah, getting an MSL job, because I think it's easy when you come out of um, your PhD to kind of say, oh, you know, I might try and get an MSL job, but if that doesn't work out, I'll just get a postdoc instead, where my advice would always be, if you think you want to be an MSL, just stick with it. You will get an MSL job. It might take you a little bit of time because you don't have that um, industry experience, but it is worth it. Um, <clears throat> So there's a couple of different um, kind of tips I can give to your listeners in terms of when you're applying for an MSL job. Um, the first one is, and this is one of the most important. So uh, last year I set up a company called MSL Consultants and I do coaching for aspiring MSLs. And so I do like CV review and interview preparation. Um, and one of the biggest issues I see with my clients' resumes is they talk about their hardcore scientific lab skills when they're applying for an MSL job. But to be really blunt, an MSL hiring manager is not going to care that you're able to do Western blots and QPCR. It's all about your communication skills, your presentation skills, your ability to influence, your ability to manage projects. So the first most important thing for an aspiring MSL is to highlight your transferable skills on your CV. Now, in order to look at specific skills that 
an MSL hiring manager is looking for, just look at the position description of different um, MSL jobs online and try and reflect some of that language in your CV and try and try and really think about how you've done certain things during your PhD. Like obviously you would have presented at conferences, you would have written clinical papers, which shows you can do medical writing. Uh, you might have worked as part of a team. Um, just really think about how everything you've done throughout your PhD can be transferable or applicable to the MSL role. So I think that's one thing that's really important. Another thing I would advise people to do is where possible, apply direct to the pharmaceutical company as opposed to applying um, via a recruiter. Because with a recruiter, the pharmaceutical, pharmaceutical company would have said to the recruiter, we want an MSL with experience. And as a result, the recruiter is unlikely to put someone who doesn't have MSL experience forward. However, if you as an MSL can write a good CV and get it directly into the hands of a hiring manager, you still might be able to get an interview if you bypass that recruiter process. Let me hop in here. Is there a, a growth uh, process that you can take inside a pharma company? Let's say you come in maybe at the entry level as an MSL. Is there a process that they will give to train you and to help you advance in your career? Or is it you better just know what you're doing and, and go do it? Yeah, honestly, it's a really, really steep learning curve. Um, it, I've worked for three different pharmaceutical companies as an MSL and a senior MSL, and the training has not been fantastic in any of them. And I have a lot of friends who are MSLs who work for different companies, and they do say the same thing. Um, so you do need to learn on your feet and learn quite quickly. And I think it's definitely one of the challenges that I faced when I got my first MSL job, because when I worked in the lab, I was there for almost three years and I was like the expert in the lab. I, I knew where things were. I, you know, I knew a lot about the therapeutic area. And then when I got my first MSL job, I just didn't really know what was going on. So it was a bit of a blow to my ego because I've just felt quite stupid for the first few months. Um, but, you know, you do pick it up. And I, I think the best thing to do is if your manager is kind of quite busy and maybe doesn't have time to walk you through stuff, just find a mentor. You will. I did in every place that I went. Who'll be able to kind of answer those small questions you have, which will make a big difference to your understanding. You know, it's so interesting to me to hear you give the advice. You know, the, the mistake that a lot of of trainees make, and that is they focus so much on their specific technical skills. Because I think mm -hmm. as Dan and I have talked to people through the years, that's a refrain we hear over and over in a lot of different industries outside of academia is I yeah. think it's so drilled into your head, your technical expertise and your, your specific yeah. research focus is of the utmost importance that it can be really hard to make that transition or to even think that other things might be valued out in the world beyond academia. Yeah, 100%. As I said, I think when you're when you're working in academia, you're surrounded by other academics. All you talk about is different types of experiments and results and everything else. So it's hard to kind of see what other skills you've actually learned unless you take the time and do an analysis on it. So you said you had another tip, I think. Yes. Another question I often get asked is, you know, if I do a PhD in cardiology, can I only apply to cardiology MSL positions? I was going to ask that. I was going to ask that question because it, it seems like if I've trained for four or five years in this very specific topic, 
I can. I yeah. have to find a pharma company who's doing drug development there, and I, I can't imagine doing that. Yeah. So, um, look, if if you've trained in cardiology and there's a cardiology MSL position online, definitely apply for it. But don't just apply for those positions. You know, I always say to my clients, you know, beggars can't be choosers. You don't have any experience. You can't just wait until this one position comes up and hope that you'll be able to get it. And also, as PhD graduates. Do not underestimate your ability to upskill in a new therapeutic area. Every single MSL job I have had has been in a different therapeutic area, completely separate to my PhD. Within a couple of months after reading papers, you're immersed in it every day. It's it's quite easy to upskill. And I think that's something that you will be asked in an interview. So, for example, if you've done a PhD in cardiology, but the MSL position is for an oncology drug, you'll be asked about how you can upskill and ju- just be honest and just say, look, I have a PhD. I've got a strong scientific background. I have um, no worries about my ability to upskill, read the papers uh, and know enough about this product and therapeutic area. I mean, I agree with that. It's you in, in scientific training, you are learning to learn. You're learning where to find the information, yeah, how to exactly. digest it, who to ask, what. Yeah, yeah it, it yeah. makes sense. And I'm curious, you know, my experience was similar to yours when I first took my, my, my first job outside of laboratory research. I'd done nothing but lab research during grad school and my postdoc for, for many, many years. And then suddenly... I'm here in an office with a computer and some meetings. And I was like, I don't, yeah. I'm like a fish out of water. But I also... You just pipetted your <laughs> cream into your coffee every day That's to feel, yeah. feel whole again. Just went through the motions. Um, but but I think there was a little part of it, though, besides it being a little stressful and like drinking from a fire hose, that was exhilarating because, you know, one reason I had transitioned away from the lab was that that wasn't really satisfying to me anymore doing experiments. And there was a little bit of exhilaration knowing, hey, you know, this is really challenging, but this is my full-time job now is to focus on these other aspects of science that are a better fit for me and who I am. So I'm curious if you experienced that at all when you first transitioned into this career. Yeah, I did. I actually, I felt when I transitioned into the MSL job that I, it's much easier to have a positive impact on patients compared to when I was doing my PhD. So my PhD was on um, the role of bile acids in regulating immune function, looking at therapeutic targets for inflammatory bowel disease. So it was basic science. It was really interesting, but it was really, really specific. And I don't know if any of the research that I did will actually improve patient outcomes. And if they do, it will be like years down the line. Whereas when you work for a pharmaceutical company, it's heavily funded. You can actually do research that affects how patients are treated. And like, that's a great feeling because you actually feel like you can have a positive impact. Yeah, you can maybe turn the ship of research from your position. You're finding out what the key opinion leaders are thinking, where they're dreaming and go back to the pharma company and say, well, this is where we need to invest. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And unlike um, like my PhD, as I said, it was basic science. So a little bit of animal work and a little bit of human samples. But the, the clinical trials and the post-marketing studies that I manage now are with real patients and real people. So to me, the results are a lot more, they're a lot more interesting. Yeah. So this is a really specific question, but do you do a lot of traveling when you're you're meeting with these these key knowledge leaders or is this over yeah. Skype or distance communication or or do you travel a lot for your position? So I travel a lot. So the first two MSL positions that I had in Australia, um, I covered all of Australia. So every single state. So I would be That's interstate a on a flight. I don't know. 
I don't know if you've noticed, but that is a full continent. It's just an island, right? And yeah, how big I know. Could it, it, be? Is, it is. Yeah, like it is huge. It is just so huge. Um, so I was interstate at least once a week. So that's a flight once a week. So there is a huge amount of travel. Um, the job that I have at the moment, I cover half the country. So it's a lot less travel. I'm interstate maybe once every two or three weeks. Um, so it's kind of for me moving from Ireland to Australia. I love the travel aspect because I got to see loads of parts of Australia that I probably wouldn't have. But it can be a little bit tiring after a while. So I think it's definitely something to take into account. If you're someone who really doesn't enjoy travel, maybe look for an MSL role where you have a smaller um, area to cover as opposed to a larger one. Yeah, that was my question, if that was typical for all MSLs or it just is company to company specific. Yeah, it depends on the company because, as I said, certain companies, you'll be an MSL and you'll cover the whole country. Um, but in other companies, they'll have a larger MSL team. So they will um, they'll split up the territories. It probably depends on how many key opinion leaders are in a contained area. So if they're spread all over, yeah. then you're going to go all over. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But I mean, I suppose the thing is with building relationships with key opinion leaders, um, you might just need to fly to meet them maybe once or twice a year. And then you might be able to catch up with them at conferences and keep in contact via via email and phone. Got it. Well, you got us through the application process. Is the interview pretty typical? Go in, answer a few questions and call it a day? Well, not so much, but um, there's tr- there's typically three parts to the MSL interview. Um, so the first will be a phone interview which with uh, human resources, um, which is just kind of a basic screening stage to make sure that they understand that you have an understanding of the MSL role. Um, if that goes well, you'll have a face-to-face interview, which will usually be with um, a hiring manager. Um, and they'll dig a little bit deeper into your um, experience, into your skills, into your therapeutic area knowledge or your ability and willingness to upskill in a new therapeutic area. Um, and then the final part of the interview is usually a clinical paper presentation. So they might give you a clinical paper, maybe 24 to 48 hours um, before the interview. And you have to develop a presentation from that and present it back to them. Um, they usually give a short time frame. Um, so this is number one to kind of assess how quickly you can upscale in a new therapeutic area, how you work under pressure, and they're also looking to assess your presentation skills during the interview as well. It's not likely to be astrophysics, right? Because that would be a very difficult transition. No, 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 not at all. Not at all. It's usually um, on the therapeutic area that you're applying for. So if you're applying for a cardiology MSL position, they'll usually give you some of the registration trials um, from that specific cardiology drug, and then you develop a presentation from that. Okay, so uh, I have a couple of questions we heard from listeners who are curious about this that sent them in. Somebody asked, should PhD students do a postdoc if they're interested in becoming an MSL? Absolutely not. If you don't want to stay in academia, get out of academia and get into pharma. The longer you stay in academia, the less attractive you will become to the pharmaceutical company because you'll be more difficult to train. That's fascinating. There you go. I've said the same thing. (laughs) If you don't want to be in academia, get out. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) They they won't be impressed by your nine years as a postdoc? (laughs) No, because people who get to that level, and even I know my boss was recently hiring for a new MSL and he interviewed someone who had like 10 years academia experience post their PhD. And my boss was like, 
look, his his scientific knowledge was excellent, but he's just not going to be a good fit for the team and he's going to be too difficult to train. So that candidate was unsuccessful in getting the job. So if you don't want to be in academia, get out of academia. It's good news, I think. Another question is, what could students be doing right now to help improve their prospects? What could they be doing to improve their, their CV or their resume uh, to be able to apply? Yeah, so I think there's a couple of things. Um, try and get as much speaking experience as possible. So presenting at different conferences. Um, also, when you're at conferences, if there are pharmaceutical companies there, ask to speak to someone from their medical affairs team or ask if they have an MSL and just start building your medical affairs network. Um, another thing you can do is um, Toastmasters is a group that's all over the world that um, helps people improve their public speaking. I mean, if you're able to join a Toastmaster group and do a few a few competitions, it's a real nice value add to your resume because it highlights and demonstrates that you're committed to being effective at communication and you're you're quite good at it. And another thing you can do is reach out to um, MSLs, medical managers, and maybe medical directors on LinkedIn in your local area and see if they would be free and you'd be able to buy them a coffee just to further develop your medical affairs network and just gain a greater understanding of the MSL roles from those kind of people who are already working in it. Are there, I'm actually curious, are there medical affairs conferences or where MSLs hang out? Yeah, so there are a couple. In Australia, there's one called ARCS. Um, so I think it's like the Australian Research Communication Conference or something like that. Um, so there are, but MSLs will go to a lot of conferences throughout the year, just like medical congresses. And so if you're an MSL for, um, you know, a breast cancer drug, you'll be going to a lot of um, oncology conferences throughout the year. So as a PhD student, if you're going to conferences and there's an opportunity to speak to people who work in pharma, because they usually have the, the pharmaceutical booth set up in the exhibition area. Just take that opportunity, start chatting to people, start asking them questions. Um, yeah, and just learn as much as possible. So possibly the conferences students are already going to. Um, yeah, exactly. Keep yeah. an eye out for these folks. They might actually be there. Yeah, yeah. And ask, I mean, go up to the booth of a pharmaceutical company and say, oh, excuse me, do you have an MSL on the team? Would it be possible to talk to them? Like MSLs are usually very chatty and open and they're going to be willing to spare a few minutes of their time if you have the a couple of questions. The, reclu listeners. the reclusive MSL who is running away <laughs> yeah. from human interaction. They, they arise from yeah. under the table. Oh, I'm so excited to <laughs> yeah. speak and build a relationship with you. You rang. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> do you have a sense, Aoife, about the difference between the United States where most of our listeners are in the United States, although we do have um, quite a few in Australia. Do you know of differences between the way pharma companies employ MSLs in the two places or should they be pretty similar? I think they'd be pretty similar. One of the differences would be, and this is um, specific to the region, so um, pharmaceutical companies abide by a certain code of conduct when dealing with um, the public and healthcare professionals. So in Australia, we have um, the Medicines Australia Code of Conduct. So this is kind of a set of rules that governs kind of our behavior. In the US, I'm pretty sure it's called the Sunshine Act, which would be a little bit different. Um, but again, all these things are freely available online. So that's something else that your listeners could do if they're interested in becoming an MSL, is become familiar um, with the code of conducts that govern um, pharmaceutical um, industry behavior and dealing with healthcare professionals and the public. Um, one of the big differences between Australia and the US 
is that in Australia, pharmaceutical companies cannot advertise direct to consumers, um, whereas in the US um, it is possible. So that is definitely one difference um, between the two places, which might make the MSL role um, slightly different, but I don't think the hiring process would be much different. Yeah, if you've ever watched a professional sporting event in the United States, I would say half of the commercials at least are for drugs of some sort. Have you ever watched a sporting event while taking all the drugs advertised? (laughs) (laughs) Have you seen these commercials, Eva, in the United Mm. States? I, I have, I have, yeah. Where they have all the kind of the, the list of contraindications and precautions and yeah, everything that yeah. flashes. There's up like the, thir- the 30 seconds of the person speaking really, really quickly with all yeah. the possible side effects yeah, at the end. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's fun. It's really fun. Uh, Aoife, where can people find you online if they want to learn more? I know you've got a, a presence there. Yeah. Um, so I, if you go to mslconsultant.com, that's my website. Um, so I have information about coaching I do. Um, I have an ebook called Medical Science Liaison, the ultimate step-by-step guide, which is a great resource if people just want to understand a bit more um, about the MSL job. And you can just email me at info at mslconsultant.com. And you have a blog up on your website. So I know that there are articles there for people that maybe want to just read a little bit more about the career uh, it's a great place to get started. Yeah, yeah. So there's some free resources um, on the website, which are really useful for people just to understand a bit more about the role. And do you consult with people in the US and all over the world or only in Australia? Yeah, yeah. It, it, it's all over the world. Um, a lot of my clients are from the US. Yeah. Aoife, thank you so much for joining us on Hello PhD. It was really great to talk to you. Yeah, thanks for having me. It was great. Wow, that was really fascinating. Do you, do you think, Dan, you would enjoy a career as a medical science liaison? I honestly wish I had known about it because I was when I was trying to finish up my PhD and looking at careers that were not academic research, I considered being a genetic counselor. I considered doing, uh, I don't I, I, everything. I looked at a lot of different industry jobs. I wanted to do biomanufacturing. I think I would have taken any option. And this one sounds kind of interesting to me because it is still deep in the science, but it's not pipetting. And I think it could have been a great option. I could see you being being really good at this career, Dan. And you know, part of it is talking to people and then pointing out to the company all the things they're doing wrong and how they could be better. That's kind of the role you serve here in the Hell PhD team. That is something like that. <laughs> You're right. And and the other thing that I love about this is I feel like whenever we talk about quote unquote, I'm doing big air quotes, alternative careers, we only talk about you could be a science writer or you can work in industry or government or government. (laughs) That's it. That's all you can do. And this is another viable career. And I can, based on the way that Aoife described the work and the types of skills that you'll use, I can think of people that I went to school with that would be perfect matches for this. You can kind of identify the person who... Yes, they had their research, they were working in the lab, they were very smart, they got their experiments done, but they were also, you know, they wanted to engage with people, they wanted to interact, they were the person that maybe left their headphones off in the lab and wanted to talk to everybody. I think there's a a subgroup of scientists out there that this is the perfect career for. Absolutely, and you know, Dan, it's been so interesting doing this show for however many years it's been now, I, I lose track. But we've talked to so many different people and learned so many things that we never knew about in our time in academia. And I'm still in academia, and these are a lot of things I would have never learned about, uh, even even in my current uh, my current occupation. And I feel like these themes keep emerging. And we talked a little bit about this during the interview. But we keep hearing from folks outside of academia the importance of switching gears or shifting gears after academia and almost 
almost the importance of and, and actually Aoife said it directly of getting out of academia as soon as you can. Not not to devalue the PhD. I mean, she was very clear that her PhD training was very important to her role as a medical science liaison. Wouldn't be where she is without it. Would not be where she is without it. But the longer you're in academia, you almost have to reprogram yourself. And hiring managers actually understand this. They actually in, in some cases in the in the example she gave us it actually is a negative looking at certain applicants that, oh, well, this guy, he knows his science, but, oh, I don't know. The amount of time he's been in academia, he's really not going to fit into the team very well. And that's not a message that I think our trainees are getting from their PIs. Yeah, when I asked whether you should do a postdoc, and she said, absolutely not. <laughs> I, thought, I thought your headphones were going to steam off because you were, you know, we had just talked about what is the purpose of a PhD? What is it training you to do? And what what I heard her say is, to be a medical science liaison, your PhD training is enough. Stop doing additional training that is not a stepping stone you need to get where you're going. If you're not going on to be a, a professor. Yeah, and, and you know, Aoife is a very successful medical science liaison. I mean, besides um, her career in that profession, the work she's doing beyond that with her her company she started up now helping other individuals from around the world transition successfully into this career path. I have to mention it, Dan, just so it's not lost on any listeners, that she did her PhD in under three years. Yeah. Why don't you rub it in, Josh? <laughs> and, and, you know, again, uh, yeah, I think there's something to this, Dan. And a reason we started the show was we wanted to learn a lot about and, and pull the veil back on the experience that individuals are having, that people are having in these science training programs as grad students, as postdocs. And our ultimate goal is we want to make it a good process because we believe in the science. We believe in the careers that all these folks are being trained to do. We believe in the PhD process and think it's important for a lot of reasons and building certain skills. But I don't know, Dan, the more time that goes by, I think there is something that we can learn, some changes we could potentially make surrounding the length of time we're forcing people to be in these programs. Josh, I loved the conversation. I know this is another one of your uh, projects is transferable skills. How do you communicate all of the things that you actually learned in your PhD that don't end in PCR, right? RT-PCR, QPCR, I don't care. Mm -hmm. Your industry resume is not going to get past HR because you listed enough techniques. It's all about the transferable skills. For people that want to Think more about that. Remember in episode 88, we did 15 transferable skills that PhDs can use in any career with Melanie Cinch. Uh, or if you go way back to episode 79, we talked to Randy Roboto about the insider's guide to industry. Go back and listen to those episodes. I'll link them in the show notes. So important. And now we've got another person in industry saying, here's how to communicate all of the things you know that you don't know you know. Absolutely, Dan. A lot of really useful advice in those episodes and a lot of and a lot of common themes to what we heard tonight. And, you know, Dan, another thing that jumped out at me, I think that that's really important during training that, that Aoife mentioned, I think it's the importance of going to conferences. For oh, I trainees. love that. I, I, I never thought about all of the different things I should have been doing at conferences other than trying to get the swag from the, uh, the booths. <laughs> You know, I, and we did a whole episode on making the most of conferences that was that I learned a lot from. But it, I just keep re, through doing this show, Dan, and through some of the advice that that we're hearing from others for trainees. I really did not make the most out of my own training, and I think Absolutely about not. you know my own time at conferences, and I was just thinking like, well, 
what are the sessions that are related to my research? I guess I'll go hear those talks and... And hope those people come to mind. <laughs> How much did I miss out on? There's just so many opportunities. And even if you're at a university where maybe you don't have a lot of opportunity to learn about some other careers, maybe you feel like you just don't have the time or the validation from your PI to do that networking you want to do, well, a conference can be a great time for you to really plan out and get those experiences and meet those people and open your eyes to all that's out there beyond your PhD and beyond academia um, if you just take the time and have the intentionality um, to go look beyond just, hey, I'm here to learn more about my PhD project. I love that. And it reminds me when we had that conversation about conferences, you advised us to plan in advance to go figure out the people that you wanted to be able to talk with, to have a coffee with, to have breakfast, whatever it was, and plan it in advance so that you didn't lose the opportunity. If you want to plan to meet a medical science liaison, I'll bet you can find out who the exhibitors are, reach out to the contacts, and actually put that on the schedule. So why not do that in advance? I think that's great advice. And I bet they would love to talk to you. You know, they paid their way, and they're probably standing there at the booth for the purpose of talking to people at the they conference. They wouldn't be there if they yeah. weren't, weren't there to learn and to meet people. Absolutely. And you never know, it may lead to a job someday. That's, that's how jobs happen, I, I predict. I mean, dare I say, Dan, it might be the most important thing you do during your training. Well, yeah. No, I believe that. I believe that because that connection could lead to another connection and that other connection could be how you get a job. And it won't be because you spent another 15 minutes on your... Western blot. So people still do Western blots, Josh. They do. Yeah. You, you had this blank look like oh, I said something from the 1840s. <laughs> they call them West Coast blots now. Yeah. Yeah. They're pretty practicing hip. your mouth pipetting <laughs> techniques. I don't think they do that anymore. Okay. Good. Yeah. yeah. All right, Dan. Safety first. <laughs> well, it, this was a really great interview. And thanks so much to Aoife for, first of all, for reaching out to us. Yeah. That was great. And the planets aligned. Yeah. And I'm glad we were able to get our time zones aligned to work out this interview. We were having a beer as she was having her morning tea. <laughs> we won. We, <laughs> we won that that's one. That's true. Thanks again to Talia for that beer. And, and thanks to uh, thanks to listener Kara for the question. Absolutely. So if you have a question or topic idea, we would love to hear it. You can email us, podcast at hellophd.com, send us a tweet at hellophd, or leave a message on the Facebook page. Uh, if you like the show, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. We do love the feedback. And if you'd like to support the show, you can become a patron. Just go to our website, hellophd.com, and click the Become a Patron button. Or visit patreon.com slash hellophd. We would appreciate the beer money, or you can mail us some beer. And thanks again to our patrons for ongoing support. All right, Dan, I'm going to finish up this delicious duet from Alpine Beer Company. Piney. A little piney. But not overly piney. Yeah, and you know, I was going to say, Dan, I always mention... The sign of me liking a beer is I drank the whole thing during the episode, but that's a little unfair for this episode because I also drank it during the entire interview. That's true. <laughs> Tonight, which well, is unusual. Let's go switch to tea, Josh, and we'll see you next time. <laughs> All right. See you next time. I just connected with you on LinkedIn while Dan was saying that. <laughs> very efficient <laughs> very efficient he's he's our social media guru you're all over it <laughs> i'm on it did you reply yet how about now she's ignoring your connection request i know it's work day now so no excuses that's right <laughs> Aoife, no thank excuses. you this was this was really awesome uh, 
I certainly learned a lot. Absolutely. Good, good. I'm glad. I'm glad. All the career paths I missed out on. I don't know. Always, I, know, I always yeah. find out about them 10 years later. <laughs> There's still time for you to be an MSL. That's, maybe that's true. I'm not sure if that's true at this point. I can't read a paper anymore. <laughs> right. Okay. Maybe not so. 